0: Dr. Hunter has chosen for a sermon text 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 1 through 12. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity but in sanctification consequently He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are all in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business, and work with your hands, just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And now, let's join Dr. Hunter. Um, there's,
1: if you... Still looking for seats. There's a few up front. If uh, some more people come in, let me uh, take care of a, a uh, an announcement matter before I begin uh, tonight at six o'clock. John Guest, who is a uh, really a neat evangelist, is going to be preaching here in the evening service. Six o'clock. Um, my hunch is that uh, after you hear the sermon this morning, you probably need a follow-up one. Come on back. Um, and get it with uh, both uh, barrels today. Uh, John's a neat guy. He's a, he's a, he's a thinking um, evangelist. It so- that sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not. Uh, solid, solid guy. And he's going to be here in February uh, to do a citywide uh, series. Um, and we, you probably read in the paper that he was going to be here tonight. But I would invite you back, 6 o'clock. I would ask you to come back at 6 o'clock tonight. Now, we are in the uh, the end of the fourth part of a five-part series of a year-long preaching on purpose. By the way, you're probably sitting here thinking, I can't even remember three weeks ago. How am I supposed to put this all together? January 9th, we're going to have a six-hour uh, workshop here that puts all of this year's preaching together in an overview so that you can see exactly why we've said what we've said and the practical application of what we've said. You can ask questions and so on and so forth, uh, but there will come a time when you say, okay, now I see how it fits. You've been accumulating all of these bits and pieces all year long and we want you to be able to use them in your life. It's not expected that you would put all of this together as we go along. I hope you don't expect that of yourself. I don't expect it of you. But I do want you at the end to see why we said what we said and how it makes sense. Um, there will also probably be coming a book out of that that you will be able to use in, uh, for future reference. But uh, come to the workshop. Okay, now, you ready for this? I want to talk to you about sex this morning. Right. So, so, yeah, saw so uh, in a cartoon in a leadership magazine that I get where this guy's finger was just drooping down like this. And the caption read, in the middle of a rebu- rebuke, Pastor Jones' finger had a blowout. I want to be encouraging to you this morning, but I want to talk to you very seriously about the power of our lust in the context of the desire for sanctification as God has given us the privilege of going on to sanctification. I say this in the context of a love message because we have a spirit... In our relationships, not of love and of giving, but of acquisition. And the main manifestation in this culture of that spirit of acquisition is in our sexuality. Now, let me go a few verses at a time uh, with you through this passage so that you can understand it completely. It says, finally, then, in the New American Standard, it means furthermore, it means the next step... uh, God, the, Paul has given this church a an informational um, um, content message, and now he goes to the practical. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel, watch that word, it's used, a few times or a couple times in this passage, excel still more. He says that word and then he tells them how to do it. By the way, practically all of the verb tenses in this uh, passage, in verses 1 through 12, are in the present tense, usually present infinitive, which calls for a continuous and repeated action. Okay, So keep that in mind. He is calling us to a continuous and repeated action. He says, For you know... What commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, let me talk to you about this for a while. First of all, this word, will of God, comes in two Greek words, bulima and thelema. There are are more than that, but those are the two. This is thelema. Some people try to concentrate on the differences of those words and try to pull out the two different meanings of the will of God. We won't try to do that because it strains the language too much. But what we do want you to notice is that there are definite, definitely in Scripture, two different contexts of the will of God. In one context, the will of God is a divine decree, immutable, immovable, undefeatable. It will happen With or without our cooperation, even our cooperation is a part of it. Now, let me show you a passage that gives you that sense. Romans chapter 9, verse 18 and 19. He's talking about the sovereignty of God. And it says very plainly, So then He, meaning God, has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He desires, You will say then to me, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? That's bulimum. Who resists his will? The implication of this passage, another plain saying of this passage, if you read the whole passage is, God says it, it's going to happen. Period. Now when there is that sense of the will of God by divine decree, it usually applies to things like our justification, our salvation. And it says God effectively calls those. Yes, um, um, the message is presented to everyone in hopes that everyone will respond. But God has decreed that there are people who will respond. He effectively calls them. But now watch this. There is another sense of the will of God in this scripture that says, without your willful cooperation... God withholds his blessings, God withholds his um, um his uh, uh, uh possibilities until unless you respond. Now you'll learn more about this next week when we talk about prayer, but this is saying sanctification is not a process that will come Without your full intentional cooperation. And that's why this exhortation is here. It is so important that you realize that. That God has this wonderful plan for your life. But it does require your response. And it's not a response. Now watch this. This is not a holiness sermon. Because I want to improve my life. This is a love sermon. Because I want to respond to what God has done for me. It is more in a romantic sense that our sanctification comes than a commandment of behavior. Listen to this. You know one of my favorite gals in all the world is Emily Dickinson. You know that. Let me read this, this poem to you that says more about the process of sanctification in verse than I ever could with my poor exegetical powers. It's talking about a love relationship and she writes this, My worthiness is all my doubt, His merit all my fear, Contrasting which my qualities do lowlier appear, Lest I should insufficient prove for His beloved need the chiefest Apprehension within my loving creed. Now listen to this last. So I, the undivine abode of His elect content, conform my soul as to a church unto her sacrament. Whew. I love this. I love this woman. Listen to this. So I, the undivine abode of His elect content, conform my soul as twere a church unto her sacrament. That's sanctification. The absolute awe and romance of being chosen the sense of unworthiness, yet the compelling excitement to conform our lives to the worth, worthiness of He who loves us. That's sanctification. Now, let's go from that to the very plain and very painful process of how to accommodate That gracious design, that thelema of God. He has a gracious design on our lives. It says in the text, You know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain, continuous, repeated, you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Now, let me stop right here. The word vessel there um, uh, in Greek is unclear as to whether or not that means our bodies or our wives. Remember in Second um, Corinthians 4, it says, for we have this treasure in earthen, what? Vessels, that's right. In First Peter 3, 7, it says, husbands, Honor your wife as the weaker what vessel. That's right. So it's not here, not not plain here from the context. Augustine disagreed with Calvin, and, and major theologians have disagreed as to what this means. But you know what? Doesn't matter because that's not the operative word. Whether it's your body or whether it's your wife, it's the it's still the same dynamic. Because let me show you the operative word. The operative word is possess. In some of your in some of your uh, um, um, versions it says control that that's that doesn't give the the right greek context it's the possession is the key here because there is a sense in which this word means to acquire to have as acquisition and what paul is saying here is that it is important that you learn in a culture that has a spirit of acquisition that you learn how Just be content with what God's given you in your own vessel. That that's what you learn how to acquire, and that's all. That you stay within your limits. That spirit of acquisition was the thing that got us into this mess in the first place. When Eve looked at the fruit and said, Ooh, it's good for food. It's delight to the eyes. It's good to make one wise. I'll take it. See? She acquired it. And since that time, we have been acquiring things that were not within our limits, especially people. Our image in this culture of sexuality is one of acquisition and conquest. It's one of use, not one of giving, but it's one of taking, one of accumulation. And it is a spirit that is very powerful. Look at the next verse. It says, now he's writing to Christians. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. There is a sense in that verb, verse, in those words that says, It overpowers you. Given the least um, opportunity, you become passive. It becomes stronger than you are if you're a Gentile because you have nothing stronger than yourself to rely on nothing stronger than your own desires and your own hungers but listen to this this is written to Christians even Christians can give themselves to the captivity of this passion. turn back to last week's scripture with me Ephesians chapter 4 it says this exactly in last week's uh, scripture I'm talking about walking as the Gentiles walk, Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Why do they have ignorance in them? Because of the hardness of their heart. Why do they have a hardness of heart? Because having become callous, they have given themselves over to what? Sensuality. For the practice of every kind of impurity, there's that Greek word again, porneo, from which we, we get the word pornography. Every kind of impurity, with greediness. There's that spirit of acquisition. You see, I want more. I can't say, if it doesn't satisfy me. I want more. And so, he writes to a church that is trying to proceed in a culture that is. Filled with a attempt to normalize sexual perversion and license. Does this sound familiar to any of you? They have two, at least two mystery religions in this culture: Dionysus, which which was a mystery religion plus a fertility cult, and Kabbarai, which is the same was the same mystery religion. And they are living in a culture that is trying to say this is the natural relationship to have, that you have no limitations or very few limitations and that it all leads back to the thinking about sex. We're not different from them. And he was writing to the Christians in the church. And Christians, if you think that the culture stays out there and the sexual perversions stay out there when you walk through those doors... You haven't taken inventory lately. Because you know what? They live in here. We grew up with them. They are on our mind. And we need to be exhorted because the church has as much of a problem, much more of a resource, but as much of a problem with living in this culture as the people who are not in the church. And let's not ever, ever fool ourselves about that. It is not, I don't think, coincidence, that I would preach this sermon to you on the week that Madonna brings out her book. (laughs) Holy cow! A major teenage idol who girls imitate and boys salivate comes out with a book full of pictures that shows her in sadomasochistic positions in, um, with uh, partners of the same sex, uh, group partners of a different sex. Um, and that, in her deep philosophy, <laughs> proves she, we should not be afraid of our sexuality. Let me tell you something. We're reaching ever lower on our level of what we will tolerate and what we won't. And I know, you know, I can almost hear Clive Thomas every day, who says, Oh, golly, it's like those Christians. If they see something, they just think something's going to take them over. You know what? Either he's a eunuch, or he hasn't dealt fully with the temptations of the flesh. You dwell on something, and if you don't think it'll take it over, you're wrong. When the excuses to heighten the visual sexual display in our culture come in the form of, well, if you don't like it, don't look at it. If you don't want to watch it, turn it off. Let's not censure our society because, look, you... You just take away somebody else's choice and you still have your. Listen to this. That is good on one level, and certainly I am exhorting all Christians turn it off. Don't look at it. Don't submit yourself to that kind of temptation. You're not superhuman. You're made of the flesh, and I don't care how much you love your wife. I mean, I do, but that doesn't matter in this conversation. How much you love your wife, how much you love your kids, how much you love your Lord. If you keep looking, you're going to chase. And when it says, turn it off, that's good on one level, but, but they've missed a part of that argument. And the part of the argument is this, that even if we turn it off, we are inextricably bound to the society in which we live. Our kids are bound to that society. And the general level of the morals of that society will affect you. Period. Period. And if you think that things are not getting worse, uh, let let me tell you something. I I get this newsletter, National and International Religion Report. Now, this is not the church version of the National Enquirer. This is solid stuff. This, This is solid stuff. Tells what's happening all around the world. Let me read to you the first four articles in this. First article. A Sunday school teacher, 77 years old, in Chuck Swindoll's church, uh, First Evangelical Free Church in Fullerton, Cal- California, who has been a leader in that church for 30-some years, is uh, charged with child molestation with the complicity of his wife for years and years and years. 77 years old. You think you're going to outgrow it? You're not going to outgrow it. Second article. Calvary Church, Santa Ana, California. Pastor David Hocking. This makes me sick. This is one of my favorite radio preachers here. Pastor David Hocking was forced to resign after confessing to an affair with a married woman in the 4,500-member congregation. Third article. Highest-ranking parish priest in the Episcopal Church resigned from the ministry after admitting he had engaged in sexual misconduct with male young adults. Fourth article. These are are the four lead articles. The 65-page proposed strategy for dealing with the incidence of sexual abuse by clergy. In the 5.2 million member Evangelical Lutheran Church in America will be put to a final vote, so on and so forth. Most larger denominations are now facing the fact that they have a horrible problem with sexual immorality in their clergy. I got... A newsletter, a newspaper, last week from a from a denomination to which I used to belong. There was a um, there was a ceremony of affirming the commitment of two homosexuals in a church uh, that I knew well, uh, very uh, um, high, highly esteemed church. The bishop mildly objected and because he had mildly objected because it looked like a marriage ceremony, there were this flood of letters from pastors to this newspaper that said, you have no right to object to this. Was not Jesus and his ministry one of love and compassion? Now watch how this works. I want to show you how this works. Very clever. The the senior pastor of the largest church of this denomination, north of the Mason-Dixon line, was a friend of mine, good friend of mine. I can remember eating breakfast with it many times. Writes and says this. Says, now look, Jesus was a a man of compassion. I know Paul wrote about this stuff. But Paul did the best he can. He didn't have a full understanding of his own sexuality. See how it goes. In order to justify sin, you've got to discount Paul. And you also have to say in the process, of course, I know more than what the Bible says. I don't agree with the Bible. I have a disagreement at this point. The Bible's not always right. Ooh, man. There was a guy uh, who got ordained the year after I got ordained and, and later was found to be a homosexual, admitted he was a homosexual. He writes a letter and says, these arguments are so clever. He says, when will we ever grow enough spiritually that we stop making heroes of men who kill men in war and stop condemning... Men who love men in peace. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Oh, isn't that clever? Isn't that clever? you got to just go a little bit further than that, though. Why are killing men killing men in war? In order to give of themselves for other people. Why are men loving men in peace? In order to take for themselves what will gratify. Now... Let me say again and again and again the reason I'm preaching to you on this subject cuz I got a problem with it personally. It has infected me. Let me also say before unless I lest I forget this that it will not be the same degree of control all your life. It has lessened and lessened its effect on my life because of the time I've spent with God. Guys, don't ever ever believe the lie of Satan that says you're going to burn like this for the rest of your life because you used to watch these movies or you used to read these books. It's not true. You spend time with the Lord Jesus Christ, He will replace that thought process. He will replace that nature. There is hope. The reason I say this is twofold. First of all, I want us to know very plainly what the Bible says when it says abstain. It's not asking for something impossible. And it's not asking for something that that shouldn't be asked of the church. When the Bible says abstain, it is saying this. You can't go on in sanctification and practice sin at the same time. It says that very plainly in the Bible. No one knows God and practices sin. Let me tell you, just real plainly, if you're living in sexual immorality and that's the practice and habit of your life, and you think you're a Christian, you're wrong. You can't live with Christ and with a sexual lifestyle of sin. Those two don't go together. And so I need you, you need to check out again what the claims of Scripture are. Even after having said that, though, there are Christians who fall. And it's unusual. As a matter of fact, I think impossible ever to find a Christian who doesn't fall. And so, those of you who are undergoing temptation, you've got to know there are resources in the church that understand and that want to help. I don't, I don't preach this to condemn. I preach this to say, let's come clean here. Let's admit who we are and how this culture has affected us out of the desires of our own heart. If you've got, if you've got a, a, a problem with temptation, there's accountability groups in this church. That, that will call you up and say, what's up this week? You know, Don't go near there. Don't go near her. Don't, drive this other way. I'm going to check on you. There's recovery groups in this church. There's personal counseling for those of you who have fallen. It's always possible for a Christian to fall short term. As a matter of fact, it can happen faster than you ever realize it is happening. But I want to say that when it talks about the lustful passion like the Gentiles, please don't think you're exempt from that, whether you're a man or a woman. It is very, very evident that we have been affected by the place we live. And we will continue to fight that battle. Who watched 2020 last Friday night? Program on lesbians. You know what? My temptation is to go, turn it off. Let let me show you something. Uh, Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. read verses 9 and 10 with me as we keep in mind that, the, that this show was about the normalcy of a lesbian relationship and the acceptance that they have found in a northern or northeastern city and the closing comments, I did turn part of it off, but the closing comments of Barbara Walters were was to the effect if we didn't have so many bigots, this wouldn't be a big deal. Let me tell you, look at this, look at the book with me here. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Very simple. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Please, please don't discount that. That's the Word of God. The Word of God stands long after we're gone. It means what it says. Please don't look on a lesbian couple as any less than you are. You know, we're included. The covetous, anybody in there? How about the revilers? Anybody in that same group? It's all about unjust gain. It's all about trying to answer this spirit of acquisition by trying to possess things and having empty gain. And whether you use a person or you use a bank account or you use a business, come back, come back to the text. Watch this. Look at the next verse. And so that verse 6 And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. You know what? This spirit of acquisition, whether it shows itself in your sexuality or your business dealings, is the same deal. All people need to be looked as as having worth, because all people have worth homosexuals and covetous side by side have worth, but neither of them are right. And they never will be right, no matter how normal it gets in this society. And you know what? Here is the sobering message of Scripture. When it says God is the avenger in all these things, you know you've got to quit. You've got to stop. Because He does not stop the consequences of our sin. He does not shield us from those consequences. If you're not a Christian, you'll go to hell. If you are a Christian, you won't go to hell. But you will suffer the consequences. You've got to stop. You've got to. I'm pleading with you. It is so symbolic to me that the new fad in our culture is bungee jumping. It is. I mean, that, to me, that is the cultural comment on this nation that we would have such a fascination with jumping off high things and falling to have fun, fully expecting. That as you near danger, you will somehow mysteriously be rescued. You know what? There are a lot of people who are living their whole lives like that. And they haven't got a cord. Morally, you haven't got a cord. God's grace and forgiveness will never let you go. But the consequences are not removed either. Stop it. God brought you here this morning so you could hear me say that. Stop it. Now let me go to the second. And I won't take as long on this. God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives the Holy, His Holy Spirit to you. Now as to the love of the brethren. Now we get into more positive ground. You have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to, there's that word again, excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, read with me here, and attend to your own business. Can I read that again, just in case some of us need it? Attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you. God says that the first step in sanctification is, abs- is abstaining. The second step is what, in Greek terms, is called pusto, and it and it comes from Archimedes. Who said Dusmui pusto kai kino game? Give me a place to stand and I can move the world. In Greek it's a it's a base of pusto is a base of operations. You've got to have some place solid where you stand, so that you can move out and be effective. Most people love by going to another person and by seeking what they have so that they can accumulate, but they've got nobody who they really are. They've got no basis of which they're trying to give. In any effective army, there's a base of operations, a base where you get your orders, a base where you get your supplies, a base where you can go back and rest, a pusto, a base of operations. God's saying, you want to be sanctified? Pay attention to your own business and come and in a a quiet life be with me. Build your relationship up with me. And I'll teach you how to love. Build a base of operations with me. And I'll let you come to the place where you can give instead of acquire. Where you've got enough to overflow instead of a hunger and a desire. See ya, Bubba. I know I've had days like that myself. It's all right, isn't it? I, I'm running over. Let me tell you a story, and then I'll quit. Um, there was a, a lady. I read this in the book. Lady, uh, true story, who really uh, w- paid uh, attention to uh, most other people's business, and she became a Christian. Well, you know, from from your past, when you become a Christian, it changes your your destiny, but doesn't change your personality. And when you become a Christian, you do the same stuff because you got that old man living in there. You do the same stuff. It just takes a while to turn the ship around. And, and so here she was. She became a Christian. And instead of getting in everybody's business to be nosy, she got in everybody's business to convert them. Finally, her pastor had a good sense just to go up and just read this portion of this sentence to her. Mind your own business. She was so shocked at being thusly confronted, she actually did it. She went and began to have that time with God, building that base of operations every day. Years later, she came to the pastor after he had watched her in her uh, posture as a a student and as her growing uh, prayer life affected that church. She came to the pastor and said, well, I want you to know how much I appreciate you telling me to mind my own business years ago. She said, I, I really have reached a whole new stage of spiritual maturity. pastor pushed her on a little bit. He said, how do you know? Have you had a new religious experience? She said, no, I haven't. He said, has God given you some vision for uh, ministry? No, he hadn't. How do you know? She said... My kids respect me more. And my friends ask me to pray for them. Now we're getting down to what sanctification and a quiet life is. As you build that base of operations, God will not only give you power to abstain, He will will build things in your life that are recognized as resources for other people. And that's how you love. Pray with me. God, thank you that you have made your will plain to us. And sometimes we wish it weren't so plain. Because we really do like this other stuff we're into. But Father, confront us. Do whatever it takes to let us know that that has no fulfillment for us. That only the purity and the holiness of a love strong enough to give, of a love overflowing enough to care for the other's good is how we will finally be fulfilled. Because that's the character of Jesus. Jesus, we invite you to come in us not right now And as we look in awe and wonder to be the undivine abode of your elect content, help us to conform our souls unto sacrament, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.